Hello, I'm Rich Terring. I never listen to Nerdology <laughs> because I am way too cool. But carry on listening, nerds. Hi, this is Mark, and welcome to Nerdology. And today's special guests are, in no particular order, Ian Martin. Hello, Ian. Good evening. And Mr. Simon Brett. Hello, Simon. Hello. And last but not least, Hayden Gribble. Hello, Hayden. Delighted to meet you, dear boy. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you all for agreeing to come on. Um, we oh, Hayden came up with the idea, so I'm not going to try and nab it for myself. This was a group effort. You know, this was a group effort. It was, but it was your idea, so you know I'm going to I'm going to give you full credit for it. Oh, Hayden, okay. being a uh, a creative type, uh, thought it would be quite nice to do a little chat about uh, the writing process and writing in general. Um, and Ian and Simon have both dabbled a bit, haven't you? I would, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a fair amount, I would say. A, I'd say a bit yeah, in yeah. my case, but yes. <laughs> uh, so we thought we'd just uh, have a little informal chat and, and see if something vaguely interesting came out of it. You never know. Well, yeah, you know, hopefully. <laughs> we so. may surprise you, listeners. We may surprise you. <laughs> I like so, I like um, the way. Sorry, before you start, Mark, yeah, I like the way that yeah. you downgraded it from a joint effort to just me, as though it will be me to blame if the listeners. Well, you know, it's a it's a double edged <laughs> sword, isn't it? If it all goes swimmingly, you come out looking like a hero. If it all goes horribly wrong, then uh, we know who to blame. Well, it's it's, it's the part I was born to play. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we should start before we do anything else. Because we're recording uh, on the sixth of September, and since last time we put out a show, um, very sadly the news has come along that uh, Terence Dix has passed away. He was the former script editor of Doctor Who in the seventies, and for a lot of guys our age, uh, he was synonymous with the the target Doctor Who novels. Um, so I suppose we ought to cover that really before we do anything else. Um, I'll come to Simon first. Mm. Um, do you have a particular favourite of his target books? Um, if you're talking about the actual content of the book, mm. I don't think I could pick anyone in particular. I mean, I've got very fond memories of Dalek Invasion of Earth because that was probably the first one I read from cover to cover which was yeah. like a hardback edition I borrowed from the library when I lived in Bude in, in Cornwall. Um, oh, yeah. And that was a case of reading that and realising, hang on, I know this story. And, I, and then I worked out that I'd obviously watched the Peter Cushing film at some stage. Um, mm. But if I was to pick one particular book, again, it's down to memories, but it's The Five Doctors. Yeah. Because mm. I remember picking oh. that up and reading that before it even appeared on the TV screen. Because it was, yeah, that was quite a big deal, wasn't it, back at the time? It was, and, and the fact is, it's nice and shiny, and and I think mm. the five doctors in itself, obviously, Terence was involved in in the whole thing, and yeah. it's kind of, I mean, obviously, we, we now live in the age of the day of the Doctor, where we all go, well, that's probably the most perfect Doctor episode ever, and you think, oh my mm. God, that's an absolute miracle that, that exists, but yeah, actually, what Terence Sticks did with the five doctors and managed to give them all a fairly hefty chunk of the apple. If you see what I mean, 
I think it's I, I think it's still it's it's a load of fun. I mean, I don't think it could have been any more than what it was, and I think just think he did a really really great job. And, and as I understand it, he did it quite quickly. Is that right? Well, from what I gather, um, Robert Holmes was initially penciled in to do it, and he just really struggled with it and just said, "I can't do this," and it got handed to to Terence Dix. So, if someone of Robert Holmes's stature struggled with it, I think it says a lot about what a professional he was that he could just turn it around in a relatively short space of time. And it is, I suppose, there is always going to be that nostalgia factor, and the fact that it's a multi-doctor story, you obviously kind of tend to possibly think slightly better of it but i i just think it's a a, a really fun story mm-hmm. i mean and, and i just kind of as soon as i saw the three doctors on television i went straight out and found the novelization of it you know so it's always about mm-hmm. multi-doctor things for me so yeah. um but yeah i mean in general uh just just his style of writing i mean they were just incredibly absorbing and easy reads so for a mm. kind of a child of that age i'm i'm i'm, I'm thinking i was reading them from about the age of eight onwards yeah. so the, the very fact that i could easily get through a book mm-hmm. be completely absorbed by it and get to the other end and not feel um hard done by or or, or anything like that and, and just completely you know and, and and just picking up on the doctor's adventures you know obviously these are the mm. the, uh, the, the times before we had vhs and what have you so we relied yeah, on these to, to know what the stories were and and I, I just think they're incredibly satisfying and easy reads, and that and that is in mm. no way putting down his style of writing. I think for children of that age, I think it's important that they can just absorb the books without feeling like it's an effort. I think that the great strength of him was the the clarity and the economy he wrote with, and those books were so accessible, and you could, you know, sit down. You've got an hour to go before Sunday lunch and you can read The Keeper of Traken or whatever. Um, and yeah, it, he, everyone's been saying it on Twitter, but he, he wrote so many of these books in such a short space of time and he did so much for for literacy for a whole generation because it was, you know, literally all the kids mm-hmm. at school would read these books all the time. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where's where's the OBE? Yeah, it's it's a bit sad that uh, it didn't come along, but I think certainly uh, seeing the outpouring of uh, emotion on on social media and hearing lots of podcasts putting out their tributes to him, I think the people that mattered the most, the fans, uh, really appreciated what he did, and uh, I think that's to someone like him, I would imagine that's probably, that probably more important. Been... Yeah. Mm, I hope. Yeah. yeah. Hayden, what about yourself? <sighs> I've I've got pissed with him. Can I say that on here, or can I say? <laughs> yeah, I, I, now, I, yeah. I. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now uh, that, that was one hell of a moment. Mm. Um, the funny thing is, is that I mean, you're talking about how much he did for a generation. I'm a little behind you guys, and I would have to say he's done it for more than one generation. Because I know several people of my own age who, whether it be through second-hand shops or local libraries, uh, became engrossed in Doctor Who through the Target novelizations. Um, for me, one very special book sticks out, and that is uh, Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. Now, I mean, back in the back in the late nineties, I 
was trying to hoover up as much Doctor Who as possible because I had 26 years to catch uh, up on to catch up on mm. basically at that point so anything i could find was like gold dust mm. and that gold dust was the target books um there was i've, I've spoken about it before on other uh, on other podcasts but there was a second hand bookshop uh in holland on sea in essex where my grandparents lived mm. and on a saturday my grandfather would walk it's about half a mile walk he'd walk up the hill from their little bungalow and he'd nip in the bookies opposite, so he'd nip into Labrooks, and he would give me uh, his earnings, uh, not his earnings, his, his winnings, sorry, from the horses. And he only ever used to put, it was always, you know, like a little uh, jar full of coppers, yeah. uh, just, the, just the loose change for the week, and then go up on Saturday, put it on a horse, and then, and then he would give me a pound, sometimes even two pounds. Mm-hmm. And I'd go in this shop, and they had like a Tupperware box on the floor, which was just overflowing with these target books. Um, And there were some absolutely fantastic novelizations in there. I remember Genesis of the Daleks was in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember Terror of the Autons was in there. Planet of the Spiders, uh, Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Knowing you and your jamminess, you probably got three copies of The Wheel in Space. (laughs) Hardcover, Mark. Hardcover. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But uh, I could... I remember stumbling across uh, the Abominable Snowmen mm-hmm. in there, which was one of the first ones that he did. And the, ver- the among that first batch of novelizations were among his most detailed. Mm. I, th- I think I think the same could possibly be said for the Target range, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I was fully engrossed in this, and I really loved uh, the et- the sound of the Yeti. And uh, I remember seeing episode two on that um, Trouton Years. Uh, VHS that was around at the time. Anyway, I went into my school library and I found the follow-up, The Web of Fear. And that book, I genuinely do not think I would have as much of an interest in writing, as much of an interest in literacy uh, in general if it hadn't have been for that book. Mm-hmm. There was something about that book which just absolutely grabbed me. Yeah. Um, and I just absolutely adored it. I know it isn't the greatest Doctor Who story of all time, but there's just something about the claustrophobia in it and the, the tight-knitted characterization of the uh, trio of TARDIS lineup at that point. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Jamie, Zoe, and the second Doctor. And I loved Patrick Troughton. He was, it was and is still my favourite Doctor. Um, that naughty uncle with the twinkle in his eye, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, it was just glorious. And... I would have to say the Web of Fear every time. I reread it last year, and I still had that same childish glee as I poured over the chapters. It's just wonderful. Mm. And Ian's right as well. I mean, you can read these things now as an adult in about an hour or an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, I think it, he had such a special talent for not simplifying, but making a story like that sort of come through come through time mm-hmm. to me yeah, so, so so to a boy in the, in in the late 1990s reading a book that had been re- been released 20 years prior at that point and still seeing the magic of it yeah. and still seeing it for what it was which was a bloody good read so that was a rather long handy way of saying that. I think the beauty of the target books was that obviously they weren't constricted by the budgets that the, the TV versions had so as you've 
all mentioned before, uh, you could sort of embellish on characters and uh, flesh them out mm. more, and they would take on a life of their own in the in the novels. That I suppose possibly, if you read the novel first and then watched the TV version afterwards, you might have felt slightly let down by watching the TV version. But uh, it was just <laughs> a really neat way to introduce certainly my generation to reading um i'm mm. i i can't imagine the number of particularly boys um getting boys into reading uh, just having that outlet i i i have to give a special a special mention uh, if i can get my words out um for uh a past doctor adventure that he released uh, he released that he wrote in the late 90s called players mm-hmm. which is a um a Sixth Doctor and Perry story, and it's about the Doctor meeting Winston Churchill uh, at a certain point in his life, and then coming back again. Uh, just uh, I think a couple of years before um, World War Two breaks out, mm-hmm. where there's the threat of Nazi Germany is becoming very real, and it the uh, there's an exploration of uh, King Edward the Eighth mm-hmm. and his ties to the Nazi regime. Um, and it's sort of a kind of what if there's like aliens playing at uh, potentially changing the course of hi- of of history through Winston Churchill mm-hmm. and Churchill was Terence Dix's hero. Um, I remember he wrote about him once in a Doctor Who magazine. Do you remember the old? Um, I don't buy it anymore, so I don't know whether they they still do. It, but when they when you pick the questions out of the TARDIS oh, tin, yes. oh yeah, 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 he he did that, and that was. Um, yeah, that that was when he talked about his main inspiration was Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a wonderful book for us to mention. Because he wrote one of the the very early uh, new adventures, didn't he? Um, Time Worm. Yes, Exodus, it was. Yeah, it was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that was, oh God, my memory's so terrible. That was World War Two, wasn't it? It was um, an alternate thirties uh, and forties where Hitler had won the Second World War and Britain had mm. become. Part of the the Third Reich, uh, and yeah, it's it was sitting on my bookshelf, but it's been yeah, a very long time since I read it. And it's it's kind of a sort of indirect sequel to the War Games. The most exciting. Th- so I read Exodus when it came out. I was fifteen. It was the summer of ninety one, and the most exciting part of it is where the Seventh Doctor is um, hanging around with Ace in this sort of Nazi castle somewhere and some officer assumes that uh ace is his uh you know um <clears throat> lady piece and uh he had mm. this brilliant bit where sylvester mccoy basically has to go uh no she's nothing to do with me i like them big and bouncy which is just such a <laughs> distressing image um but uh <laughs> exodus would be i think probably my choice for um Terence Dick's books because after that he sort of got a, a worse and worse brief each time with something like did mm. anyone read The Eight Doctors that was the first novel yeah. I never read that yeah no. oh don't read that please don't read it you, you, no one's life is that long I mean it's well written <laughs> obviously it's it's Terence Dick's but the, the brief he was given was you know drop in a little yeah. cameo from each of the previous Doctors in this really loose kind of yeah whatever kind of story make up a new companion who's like a generic companion with nothing 
exciting or interesting about her. And uh, Owen, if you could just set the Sixth Doctor's bit during the end of Trial of a Time Lord and 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 do a sort of parallel bit where it's really confusing because separate to what's actually happening in Part 13 of Trial of a Time Lord, you've also got the Eighth Doctor turning up and everything... Fr- oh, dear Lord, no. No. Just no. Well... That was a, uh, a lovely recommendation there, Ian. So uh, we'll all be digging out the eight doctors. Exodus, though, is really good. Yeah, I remember it being good. But it's been a very long time since I read it. But yeah. Yeah, Simon, Simon and I are just deleting the eight doctors from our eBay basket now. So thanks for that. <laughs> I mean, it could be worse. There, there were a lot worse books published in, the, in that range. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it didn't begin well. So what you're what you're saying is five doctors was his limit. Any more than five doctors and things started going wrong. <laughs> I mean, do we need more point. than five? Do we ever need any more than five doctors? <laughs> oh, but if you did it now, if if someone you know, if if you woke up tomorrow and you were the showrunner and they said, right, we want a five doctor special, you can pick any five doctors from the thirteen we've had. That would be brilliant. Oh, which five would you choose? Oh, Matt Smith, Tom Baker. Uh, the Valiard, uh, Jody, and uh, Sylvester. Now, see, see, this this is an interesting writery question. Is the fact that I think we would all probably tip for for Jody, wouldn't we? Because it's I, it, can, point can of I, difference. I, yeah, because I don't know. If you're the same as me, you kind of I don't feel like she's. They've kind of found everything they can from her, if you see what mm. I mean. I know we've got another series to go, but as a writer, that it's like if somebody says, oh, you can pick a doctor, which doctor are you going to pick? I, I usually pick the, the one I know least about or the one that I find mm. the most difficult in some respects because you kind of feel that you've not kind of gleaned what you think they're capable of. Does that make sense? Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you're a... You're a brave writer. You like a challenge. See, I would, yeah. I would pick a very easy doctor to write for, and would then you? that, and then that part of the story takes care of itself. And then all you've got to worry about is the plot. But you just have the seventh doctor, and he can just be standing enigmatically in a shadow for thirty pages, and, and that's, <laughs> that's marvelous. <laughs> I, th- I think, I, I think it's probably just me trying to trick my brain because if I start, if I'm given a problem, then that gets my brain working and that's where the story comes from. Hmm. Well, everyone's got different tricks. Yeah. I think I'd probably go for a mixture. I think I'd probably have... I think you'd have to have the current Doctor because, like like you said, Simon, you, there's not much that's been done with her yet and her story isn't isn't over. Um, And it'd be interesting to see her possibly up against quite a brash Doctor, so possibly Colin Baker... Maybe. Um, and then you could have more of a playful doctor. So I suppose that's where your Matt Smith and your Patrick Troughton would come in, one of those two. Um, mm. And then I suppose you'd possibly need someone to... Oh, God, now, now it gets difficult. Oh, I don't know. I, I know what you mean, though, with regards to... Like, in a challenge with writing for... A, a character like like Jodie who isn't fully formed. Maybe that's one of the reasons why last series didn't work for many people. I don't know. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, we don't want to go down that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, back, back, <laughs> back to writing, everyone. So, Ian. Hello. You've, you've, you've talked about your uh, series of novels previously on the show. Um, would you like to just give a little refresher on uh, your character, your main character, and the sort of uh, yeah. the general feel of the, the novels that you, you produce? So... So back in the day, I, I started this five years ago when the idea of having a an episodic sci-fi adventure series where the main character was a woman was just a whole new idea. Um, and well, I, that's just crazy and talk, I had it? it and it was my idea. And now the BBC <laughs> have stolen. Uh, no. So uh, my <laughs> there are uh, seven books in the Winterhill series. And Rebecca Winterhill is uh, a lady who wakes up um, it's 500 years from now. Uh, she wakes up. She has no idea particularly of who she is, how she got where she is, or, or, or any personal memories. And it, across the seven books, she just kind of travels around the, the, the 12 galaxies mankind has expanded into. She has a number of adventures with a couple of recurring uh, villains or monsters, and, and there's kind of a big business uh who are a kind of villain as well there's a lot of politics um and yeah she she just sort of has really i think quite brilliantly written adventures um, and <laughs> Even has, if you a say lot, so has a lot of cocktails and talks a lot of nonsense uh and and they were all really good fun well i've read the first one and enjoyed it immensely and i i got a slight flavor of Douglas Adams coming through. I don't know if that's, that's someone you particularly enjoy or whether that you just have very, a similar sense of humor. That's very or... kind of you to um, mention me in the same sentence as Douglas Adams. He was, yeah, I mean, so when I was kind of seven, seven or eight, The Hitchhikers was on TV. But I think even before that, my dad had listened to it on the radio and probably taped mm-hmm. it off the radio. So it was part of me... Uh, I mean, I, I read the books probably before I really was old enough to understand eighty percent of the jokes in them. Um, mm. But yeah, he was—he was someone who was very much uh, who, who, who I grew up with, like like Terence Dix. You know, um, he didn't—he didn't write perhaps quite as many books as Terence Dix, uh, um, but his voice has always been. I suppose something that's that's been in in the background, and then other people have said that some of the stuff is a bit Terry Pratchett, which again uh, okay. is incredibly flattering. I mean, not not in a fantasy sense, and I don't have anything like Pratchett's amazing warmth or, or, or humanism. Uh, I am, if anything, quite a misanthropic, bitter, and, and vengeful man. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, I don't wear a hat, so swings and roundabouts. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I you know there, some some of the stories I I do kind of play more for laughs, and some of them are much more serious, and it all gets a bit earnest, and probably a little bit too earnest. I don't know. You can never judge your own work, etc. Uh, but yeah. So do you have a sounding board for your when you're in the writing process? Do you have someone you trust who you can sort of 
send drafts to who will look it over and, and sort of give their their opinion as you're writing or is it very much your personal process and uh it doesn't really see the light of day until it's fully formed and and out for people to read it started out um i would uh inflict my works in progress on a couple of people um mm-hmm. who i think after after about three books of just very polite nods and all that, yes, that's very good. I thought, yeah, you're not really either giving a toss or or, or feeling any. I guess it's hard, difference. particularly if they're friends, yeah, because obviously exactly. they probably don't want to upset you by saying, "Oh, actually, oh, that was pretty dull." Yeah, uh, or you know, yeah. Or, but on the other hand, that was, that was... you're relying on someone to turn around and just give it a critical eye and say, "Well." that worked but this could do with tightening up or just lose that bit or yeah it's, it's difficult i mean so the kind of breakthrough was i was hanging out um at the literature festival in dubai a couple of years ago i was hanging out with uh, lauren oliver who's an american uh, ya novelist and mm-hmm. she um we we got talking we had a lot of cocktails um and <laughs> she ended up reading the first book as well and she gave me loads of really good feedback you know she was Mm. like she was like i love what you're doing i like the dialogue um your plots are you know because each within each winterhill book there are like six or seven uh kind of adventures and they're all about the same length Mm -hmm. um and she said sometimes that's absolutely fine and it goes past you know really quickly other times you you don't have enough plot and your plotting could be a lot tighter and you have Mm. you know you have like a a, a, an an l-shaped plot when you should have a y-shaped plot or you know that it was Mm -hmm. significantly under plotted so after i spoke to her and we had that exchange i would put a lot more into the actual stories i was telling and and worry less about giving the characters lots of funny lines or lots of hero moments and just let that happen more organically within the stories. And then I suppose the last kind of three books in the series, I just purely wrote on my own without getting any input or uh, opinion. And I think the general consensus from from both people that have have read them um, is that the last couple of books were by far and away the best. So what do I know? I think I imagine it, particularly if you're writing a series, I would, I mean, I've got no idea because I'm not a creative person like that, but I would think that if you sound, it sounds like you got that sort of a bit of advice and feedback that you were really looking for at a relatively early stage uh, within the series and it just gives you that bit of confidence to know that you're kind of going in the right direction and you can kind of go back to that and use that um, when you're getting to the next part and you perhaps don't necessarily need that sounding board but can kind of anticipate where the story is going and it just kind of flows rather than you having to keep going back and trying to second guess yourself you that bit is kind of in the back of your mind you don't really need to to focus on that yeah i think so i think it i think um the the feedback i got from from lauren happened at exactly the right time 
because you know the the first couple of books you're just kind of oh what was the expression pantsing it thank you simon um <laughs> and you know all you're thinking about is oh my god can i write a book can i write enough words uh, i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> and then by the time you're on your third or fourth book you know you can do it you know yeah you know it's going to work you could afford to therefore try a bit harder with what you're doing otherwise you just write the same book mm. seven times yeah and you should yeah, always that must be a, a potential pitfall mm. really really must be i mean there are i could i could tell you any number of authors who always just write the same book every year uh, a lot of them are incredibly mm. rich people but that's that's yeah that's not fair. Um, it must be hard because it must be a sort of balancing act because obviously if if you do get um praise for what you've done you know there's obviously that temptation to go back and you want to sort of recreate that but you have to be able to take it forward and and perhaps give it a new direction it must be quite a a balancing act. Yeah, but it's it's the same in any art form, isn't it? If you think about if you think about the edge in U two, you know, yeah, they they could try and reinvent their sound every record, or they could just redo exactly the same thing every time. And at the end of the day, if if you if you've got to pay for that many private jets and you need to guarantee an absolute <laughs> minimum income of twenty million dollars, <laughs> you need to make sure that your album is going to sell exactly the same number as the last one. Um, and mm. a lot of writers, to be fair, that the sort of novelists that produce, uh, you know, a, a, a genre novel every year, be it a, a crime novel or a historical fiction novel. They're on such a treadmill mm. in terms of having an, an idea, writing the book, doing a, a signing tour for the previous one, doing all the you know, the legal stuff. They genuinely don't mm. really have time to think outside the box or second guess themselves. Someone like, um, I don't know, James Patterson's a bad example because he doesn't even write his own books anymore. But, um, <laughs> you know, someone like that who just produces three or four books a year. He doesn't have time to think, how can I make this different? Or what can I do to subvert my own format? It's like a production line. Yeah, it's, it's literally, I wake up today, I've got to do three and a half thousand words, and then I can go and, you know, buy some chips. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the great privilege of, of not being a full-time professional novelist is that, you know, I can think about things more and be like, well, I've written book A. I want to write a book that's more like, you know, book B. I want to try... Uh, and do this kind of thing and it doesn't matter if you know my readers don't like this one because they know there'll be another one along soon that they mm -hmm. might like but i'm not going to lose you know 20 million readers around the world i'm going to lose five guys in in essex um, <laughs> i mean hayden you've not been afraid to switch up genres have you because you you've been quite prolific haven't you over not oh. that uh, longer an no of time. I've actually I mean uh, there's five books that have been published but I counted up the other day that mm. I've written seven books in seven years uh, I started out in 2012 with a crime thriller idea which quite mm. honestly only came to me from a really boring edition of match of the day on a Sunday <laughs> I was sitting there in bed I was really bored I was on my laptop and I'd been reading quite a lot of, of sort of spy thriller novels at that time. Um, mm. And I kind of thought to myself, I mean, you know, listeners 
who have heard me on podcasts as Royale may well know that um, that I'm a big James Bond fan. And I was always quite struck with uh, The Living Daylights, the Timothy Dalton uh, debut, where he's in that first scene, well, not the first scene, in the first scene of the main film after the, uh, the cold open, mm. he looks like a man who absolutely resents his job, who absolutely is disgusted in what he's doing. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about uh, an agent, an assassin, who's basically paid to kill people, and that's it, and hates it, and wants to go back to his old life with his wife mm-hmm. and just just live a quiet existence. So I sort of thought to myself, like Ian was said, you know, you can be quite daunted with the first book. And I just thought, well, I'll just break it down. I'll write 12... I don't think I was that specific, uh, but I ended up writing 12 short stories with a linking narrative that when you mm-hmm. uh, sort of sellotaped them together, they formed a novel. You know, there was about 45,000 words, I think, that, and I wrote it in the space of about four or five months. It t- took a couple of years to come out, but um, yeah, I-, I went from a crime thriller book, uh, that becoming the man in the corner, uh and I released, uh, I say released, it, it sounds really pompous, but, you know, I, I basically, I uploaded to Amazon uh, <laughs> a, um, a, a very modest anthology of uh, my teenage angsty scribblings, which I called Tales from Another Me. Uh, and then there was mm-hmm. a bit of a break uh, whilst I was writing the first Captain Random book and also my... Uh, autobiographical Doctor Who book, The Child Out of Time Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years. And yeah, there, there was quite a lot mm. of genre hopping, I suppose. Um, but I, I suppose it's it's trying to find my feet with what I was good at and what I was comfortable with doing. And also hand in hand with trying to push myself and challenge myself uh, at that point as mm. well. Um and each and every one of them have been an absolute joy to to write. I have to say. I mean, I've, I've apart from obviously going back and doing edits, I've never gone back and and read them again because I kind of think once they're finished, then they're sort of out there. They're not really mine anymore. They're you know. I can imagine you've invested so much of your time into writing them that you've kind of lived lived the book. Yeah. So. Well. It, it, like you say, once once it's done, it's out, yeah. and that's it. You move on. Yeah, especially one. with Child Out of Time, I had literally lived that book, so it was mm. it was it was old news to me for by then. But I suppose from conception to the book actually coming out, I I think the average time frame has been about two years, and mm. that could take that that could be the book taking anything from sort of nine to twelve months to write. And then there being a sort of three to four month period where I put it to one side and forget about it for a little while. Um, and then I'll I'll do something mm. else. I might start another book or, you know, there, there might be something else going on with a, at a different stage. Um, and then I'll come back to it with fresh eyes, which is when I will then attack it for the second or third draft. And then, and then at that mm. point, that's when I send it off to my proofreader. Um, I have, I, I am a self-published uh, author, but I have a small group of people who uh, basically help me out. So I have two proofreaders. Uh, I'll go I'll give it to mm. one. They'll have a look at it. They'll send it back. Uh, I'll make those amends. And then I'll send it off to somebody else just in case there's something that both myself and that other proofreader has missed. 
uh, and then uh, I've got a cover artist. Um, uh, in the case of the Captain Random books, is the brilliant Anthony Morin or Weird Bean um, mm-hmm. on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Hey, mate. Uh, and then there'll be a cover designer uh, who I'll use uh, through Fiverr um, just just to bring all of Anthony's brilliant work together um, and put mm-hmm. it into uh, put it into you know the spine and the, the back and the, and the front cover and then uh, upload it to mm-hmm. uh, to the publisher and then do it that way. And I've I am someone who I'm I'm not sure I I have to admit I, I'm not that. Uh, clued up on your background, Ian, when it comes to uh, your books and how you got them out there. But I understand that you do working publishing, yes? I do, yes. Yeah. But I, mean, I self-publish most of my stuff because mm. because I work in the publishing industry, I know what it's really like. And, and yeah, it's, it's not really a, a world I'd want to no. be part of. No, I, I, I've had two books with... Um, with two fairly small publishers. There was a local one to me who picked up a dad's army book that I wrote. And this was kind of, this, this was all a part of the learning process, but incredibly painful at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, I oh, spent, yeah. <laughs> I, I spent a couple of years writing this uh, dad's army handbook. So it was an episode guide on all the episodes, uh, little mm-hmm. bits about the actors and trivia and what have you. And it, I think at the end of, of the first draft, it was about 120,000 words. Um, and I'd wow. spent, I mean, I, I, I was, oh, was I 23, I reckon, when I started writing this? So I was still, still living at home. So I felt like I mm. could afford to maybe take a day off work a week. So I, I dropped hours, essentially, to, um, to finish this book. Um, and when I delivered it, I've been sending it chapter by chapter to uh, to the to the publishers. When I delivered it, and they, I finally said, "Yeah, here it is. Let me know what you think." Uh, they got back to me and said, "Oh, this isn't what we wanted at all." And I thought, "Well, what have you been reading over the last two years?" I was going to say, "You've been delivering this yeah, piece bit, bit by I mean, bit." Oh, absolutely. You think they come back to you fairly sharply? Yeah, yeah. and and it then also transpired that. There wasn't a proofreader per se. I would have to edit my own work, which I think is the worst way to go about things. Because even if I look at the word the and I've spelt it te, I'm still going to think that's the greatest word I've ever written because it's my work. It's, you know, I'm not (laughs) saying... And your own eyes are not going to pick up on typos like that. You just, you you can't do it. I mean, we've all written a lot of things and we've edited them and edited them and edited Mm. them, but you're always going to miss two or three on a page and Absolutely. it's terrible that, that that you were in that position where you've got to do all your own editing but i'm i'm absolutely fascinated by the idea that you were sending them chapters as and when they were written yeah and only at the very end of that did they turn around to you and say oh no we'd we'd no no we don't want this it's like yeah. well that's that's shocking but i mean it's it's not mm. shocking because i know it happens a hell of a lot but it, mm. it it's mm. so divorced from the kind of myth I had of what it would be to be a writer when I was yes. a kid. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, we're all growing up thinking that we still live in the 70s and you can be Martin Amis and ponce around in your velvet smoking jacket, tossing off a couple <laughs> of pages a day. And, and there's a whole team of people who will be checking everything and typesetting it and all this and that. Yeah. And writers now have to do so much. And a very good friend of mine um, was in a, a very similar thing. She had written a book that was set in World War Two. And uh, it was a, a, a kid's book set in World War II, uh, had, a, a say, three characters in it. And every step of the way, the publishers were saying to her, this is really good. We loved your latest chapter. This is great. This is going to be the best thing ever. And she finished it. And they said, right, what we probably say to you is, could you actually set it in World War One and have <laughs> five characters in it? Oh, So Lord. her second draft was a page one rewrite, which... Um, so yeah. it does it does happen a lot, but it must have been, you know, really, um, it must have really knocked the, the wind out of your sails at that point. must be so demoralizing. It was, it was but it, it was a lesson in in the way that the business could be. So I think from there on in, I mean, I, I did, funny enough, Child Out of Time was with another publisher, and then there was another lesson there, which was, if you're not a name, you're not going to get anywhere, essentially. Um, I was... But how do you become? Well, ex- well exactly. There, there, <laughs> there was a publisher who were prioritising celebrities, and I will do bunny quotations here. I mean, most of them seem to be actors from the 1980s who haven't done anything in 20 years, that kind of thing. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I delivered my book, and after a year, I hadn't heard anything. And I thought, well, what's going on here? There's other books that they were putting out, which I completely understand, but they then owned up to prioritizing others over mine because they basically wanted a name to set up their company. And I said, right, well, give it back. Give it back here. I'll do it myself. And I released it. And uh, I mean, it's they, they were big, big, big learning curves. Big learning curves. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I've got a complete distrust distrust for the industry, but what I'm saying is, is I, I like the autonomy I have over my own work. And I like the fact that mm. I I can release it on my own steam essentially and basically not be mucked around. <laughs> mm, it's a, yeah. it, it's there's two sides to it. There is that um yes you you're the the master of your own work and you you you're you're not being mucked around and you're not going to be frustrated but also um you've got so much more freedom mm. to do what we do. Yeah. And you know, there, there there are an awful lot of, you know, professional and very famous novelists who regularly say to their publishers, I don't want to do volume 12 of this crime series. I want to do a historical novel or I want to do a romantic comedy. And they're like, yeah, we're only going to publish volume 13 of your rather limiting crime series. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of these big names are on as much of a treadmill as... Uh, you know as anyone so mm. at, at every level of success from you know the, the look at jk rowling you know she couldn't do anything with casual vacancy mm. until she'd finished potter and i think she probably would have benefited hugely from breaking it up a little bit and trying the cormorant strike books as well but i think yeah. bloomsbury just had a nailed to a desk churning out potter until mm. it was done sorry i've i've i've, I've rambled on 
And I really want to hear... Me too. I'm so sorry, Simon. I don't know, I don't know if Simon's still there <laughs> or if he's maybe gone down the pub or something, but I'd love to hear <laughs> about Simon's writing. Simon. Simon, what have your experiences been? Because um, you've, you've got the added thing because you're particularly gifted. You are also a very talented artist as well. So you've got that extra dimension when you're involved in, in projects, haven't you? Well, that's very nice of you to say, but the the disadvantage is because I'm chipping away because I do a bit of music as well, and I do like bits of radio and what have you. So I'm chipping away at lot at lots of mountains, which means that you don't necessarily get the big projects done. So on on the writing side of things, I'm I, I was sitting back listening to you all. Actually, mm. <laughs> I'm sitting here quite happily <laughs> listening because I'm so used to just listening to writers talk. Because I'm still at a very early stage. I don't really... I'm still trying to kind of figure it out and build up build up momentum on the writing side of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it all started for me a few years back uh, when a, a few of us just talked about doing some kind of unofficial charity Doctor Who anthology. And I'd know, I hadn't done any writing since I was at school. I hadn't done anything since pre-O-level. And... Um, I think I, we had a conversation the other day, didn't we, Ian, about this, where where it was yes. an English teacher, and I wrote this Star Wars-based story that the teacher utterly ripped apart. Yeah. And, and being and, and being in the place my mind was at that time, that was kind of like, well, obviously I can't write. So it's never even occurred to me for you know well over thirty years to to actually write something again. But being in amongst a lot of creative people and like-minded people where I felt comfortable. We talked about doing this Doctor Who anthology where I was initially just going to do some of the artwork. And then somebody said, well, why don't you have a, have a go at writing a story as well? So I just did this David Tennant story and suddenly realised, oh, yeah, I can do it. And then people were reading it and saying, oh, actually, it's okay. It's, it's a lot better than some of the stuff we've read. You know, <laughs> and, that, and that, that for me was, you know, was really really nice to hear so um and and i even started thinking well i can draw uh, and surely i can't write as well because no one can do you know both those things so um but there, but then from there there was another like a horror anthology and these are all unofficial things self-published like you've been talking about and and purely for charity so you know no money was changing hands certainly not between anyone who made it the money was all going to the charities but it, it meant that it took some of the pressure off as well to just try something and 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 for people to read because i think i i think probably everyone will agree that the, the the greatest thing to come from doing your writing apart from the personal fulfillment is to have feedback from people who are actually reading your story and it's mm-hmm. and it's kind of little a little miracle in as much as for them somebody to turn around and say oh yeah i really like your story and you you kind of like what what it worked mm-hmm. and they go well yeah it worked and i really enjoyed it and you're like Oh, okay. So th- this is this is how it works. So I'm 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 very much at the point where I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book, um, which is coming on in fits and starts. Um, but as part of that, and the fact that my personal life has been very very busy over the last few years, I've got young children, and we did a load of work mm-hmm. to the house. So while I was working on the house, I was listening to an awful lot of podcasts and a lot, and listening to an awful lot of writers talking, just to try and get in that mindset. Um, you know, it, I've I've realised that the writing is about 
for me is about creating habits and it's about trying to do it as often as possible and keeping your head in the same space and and sometimes it is just a case mm. of chipping away at it every now and again rather than um I, I did try the thing of taking a week off work in order to do a load of writing and it just didn't work because your head's got to be in the right space yeah but what i have for me has worked is literally get up very early in the morning before anyone else wakes up when your brain's fresh and before anything of real life can interfere with what you're trying to do and just getting a bit done every day and that's re- worked really well you know literally a word count every morning so i did um you know there's things like NaNoWriMo which is the um oh what is it oh yeah i'm trying to remember what it stands for <laughs> it's you, you write oh. a novel in a month isn't it it's 31 it's, days essentially yeah. yeah yeah so so you know and there there is and and i've come across software that works so i'm i'm very much at the other end of the what these guys are doing where they're just writing books so I'm still at the stage where I've yet to write a complete book. I've written quite a few short stories, um, which I've really, really enjoyed. And I've had people say to me, oh, writing short stories is so much harder than writing a book. And I'm thinking completely the other way around. <laughs> I can churn out the, the short stories. But the idea of doing the whole book. But what what I will say is that it, as time's gone on, and as, as I've listened to other people talk about the process and figuring out how I can physically do it, it feels more and more achievable. And um, it, there's a, an incredible community of, of writers out there, particularly on things like Twitter. The writing community on mm-hmm. Twitter is so supportive. It's the absolute antithesis of a lot of what's going out, going on on social media. And a lot of, I don't know if Ian would agree um, with the authors he, he deals with, but um, my understanding is that a lot of authors, regardless of their status, are very generous with the time and very generous with you know people like Neil Gaiman on Twitter is is incredibly mm. generous with with advice and and with you know encouraging people to write. Um, so it's there's a whole real ball of energy as far as writing is concerned. There's an awful lot of people doing it. I realise, and you have to be incredibly lucky to you know to lift yourself to the point where obviously you can give up your work, your job or anything like that. That's something that every writer dreams of. Um, but, um, but in general, I found it a really, really positive thing and, and, and sorry, I'm going on a bit, but because I do a lot of different things, what I have found, my big admission is that I haven't actually read that many books and that's, (laughs) and I I can imagine Mm. some writers going, what, what the, you know, but what I have realized is that if you're a sponge and you're quite creative, as I'm sure the other lads feel the same is that it doesn't matter what you're doing because I watch an awful lot of movies Mm. and I listen Mm. to an awful lot of music and I can get ideas from any of those things and I can get influenced by any of these things and and I know earlier you were mentioning about whether there's certain writers that we that we uh read when we were younger and we feel has influenced our writing I mean I think I think everything influences your writing and everything influences your creativity and I think you've got to give yourself a break and just let yourself be yourself because I think there's a, there's a lot of writers, and I certainly know there's a lot of musicians out there who will try and model their work on a particular writer or artist. I imagine it must be very difficult to try and find your own voice because, you know, there are there's that pressure you want to become successful and there's always that kind of... Yeah. Whether, it, whether it's done on purpose or whether it's a, 
you know something that's there subconsciously that you know particularly in genre stuff you can i can imagine you could quite easily fall into the trap well, of i think you've got you to know, doing yeah you've got to take your foot off the pedal as far as that's concerned because i've i've found myself mm. thinking you know I, i'm another one who loves douglas adams and loves terry pratchett and i keep thinking i want to write funny and i've thought to myself mm. i want to write like pratchett and it it that just it just doesn't work you've got to take your foot off the pedal and just trust that if you love those things and you've absorbed those things over the years that they will come out naturally so again that's yeah. that that's another lovely positive thing is if someone turns around to you and say oh yeah I like your writing it's a bit like this or it's a bit like that i mean i i did a horror story and somebody turned around to me and it was it was in a lovecraft anthology and I didn't know mm. anything about Lovecraft. I think I played Call of Cthulhu when I was at college, and that was about as close <laughs> as I got to it. But I kind of understood it, and I did the story that kind of touched on the things that he touches on, but in a way that was personal to me, because I didn't see the point in writing something which wasn't me. And then somebody turned around to me and said, oh, you write like M.R. James. And then I wow. looked up M.R. Wow. James, and somebody went, and, and, and I thought to myself wow <laughs> you know and that is a, it's a huge compliment but that wouldn't have happened if i would had focused on trying to write like someone else or start, trying to write in a certain style i just i just don't see the point and i think because unless you're literally going to write like a like a workhorse and you're going to write a particular style of book for a particular market that and treat it like a job then that's one thing but i think if you're going to write from the heart and I think that's that's what I've discovered from hearing everyone talk about it is you've got to write from your heart. Then that that's the only way to go, really, and that's the only way you're going to write your best work is writing from the heart and being personal and not trying to be anything other than yourself. And and do you find that it feels less like work because you've taken on that that way of producing the book. I've, you're you know if you're trying to work to a formula i can imagine it could get quite sort of yeah i mean that, that's that's the brilliant thing about the short stories is that with something like that you can be given a fairly tight um you know uh, a brief a brief yeah. yeah because you can treat it like an experiment and you know you're not going to be spending too much time on it but obviously with a book then you're devoting a, an awful lot of your own personal time to it so you know there's a big part of me because i'm so busy with with personal life and, and all the things I'm doing, then I don't particularly want to be wasting time on anything. So, um, but I mean, the, the surprising thing is the book I'm writing, I'm not going to say too much because another thing is that you can lose impetus if you give too much away when you're talking Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, but what has surprised me is being such a sci-fi geek and fantasy and things like that is the book I'm writing just isn't fantasy or anything like that. It does touch on my love mm. of music and it does touch and it is autobiographical, um, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a fictionalized version. So th there's lots of bits of everything going into it. So I'm quite, you know, yeah. I, I, I know the shape of it and I know what I want it to be. And I'm quite a few chapters in and I've literally... <laughs> Um, I'm sure the other guys will gasp but I've got so far into it and realised actually I don't want this to be third person I want it to be first person so I'm rewriting everything I've written already oh crikey oh, wow. I know but it, but it's like oh no of course that's what it should have been in the first place so that that's where I am with it I'm nowhere near what these guys are doing and I'm nowhere near getting this thing published but and I think knowing you like I do once that idea has crept into your mind you can't let it go and you're going to have to go back and do it yeah 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I've actually signed on to a um a writing course, like a year long writing course. Oh, right, okay. Which starts at the end of this month and it's kind of goes in mm. three month tranches of writing so many episode um uh, you know episodes and then getting a critique and then getting it back mm. and then and I think that'll probably work for me because it'll you know I work well with deadlines and I work well with with those sort of pressures where I've got to get something done by a certain time. Mm. So um I work I I I use a piece of software called Scrivener. I don't know whether the other guys do, which is just a a brilliant writing. Even I've heard of that. Yeah, so, brilliant yeah. piece of writing software where I don't think there's a function that's missing from it. And one of the great things about it is you can do a daily word count on there. So you can treat it almost like running where you've got to run a certain distance every day. Well, you, you write so many words every day. And then the brilliant thing about that, if you um, struggle with, um, I don't know, any kind of work ethic or anything like that, the brilliant thing about that is you do get a certain amount of personal feedback because you you look at this little target meter on the screen and you think oh i've done really well and you can see it creeping up mm-hmm. to, to to the bar getting full up does so, it give um, you like a, a little nudge does it because my, my my running app if i haven't run it'll say you lazy bastard you haven't run for three days stop eating pies and put your shoes on does scrivener send you a little text alert to say you haven't written anything for nine hours are you dead <laughs> it, it kind of works in that respect because you look back at the at the target and it and it obviously adjusts if you don't do enough words one day then the amount you've got to work right the next day gets bigger oh right so, yeah, yeah so you are always aware of it and it, it's just it's just brilliant it's just brilliant and and as i say i've just listened to lots and lots of people talk about their own experiences and hearing as you as you've been talking about talking about the difference between self-publishing and then going to a publisher and the importance of maybe getting an editor. I mean, that's something that neither of you have mentioned. I don't know whether you've ever used a, an editor or not, or whether you would employ one. Um, about the importance of that and getting a fresh mind, and also things like beta readers, where you get somebody to read your book after the first draft to, to give you feedback. Um, the importance that those people should never then read your next draft and 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 feedback because they're already aware of what was happening previously so you've got to get fresh eyes yeah. each time um they, they, there's it's quite scientific no, it's it actually is. very it's it very is. scientific i mean don't get me started on the story shape i mean the the books i'm reading people <laughs> like john york's into the woods and things like that oh, and yeah. um I, i've got to pick up stephen king's book that everyone tells me i should read as well on writing but the trouble is I, i'm spending all this time reading these books and not writing but um but it is fascinating to look at story shape and, and 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 how and certainly you know going back to doctor who watching doctor who all of a sudden it's like you're looking under the hood you can see how it's all working mm-hmm. which is fascinating in its own right but um but equally sometimes you stop watching something and enjoying it and you're analyzing it while you're watching it it's um it's quite a big thing really yeah i i've i've used editors in the past in the form of proofreaders just people who essentially will tell me what doesn't work and what to fix. Um, but I, I, it's interesting what you said about, you know, you, you've got different fingers in different creative pies by the sounds of it, Simon. And I actually, I actually have, I have to admit about this time last year, I realized I was burning myself out with the amount of things I was doing. I was uh, DJing on local radio uh, once a week and I was writing 
Captain Random and the Eater of Souls, the second uh, Captain Random book, which is available on the 1st of October. <clears throat> and uh, I then... <laughs> and uh, very Thank you very much. And uh, I was also not just on the Diddly Dumb podcast, but I was doing my own podcast, uh, the James Bond Podcasters Royale mm-hmm. uh, show. So... And it was all just becoming a bit too much. Um, and I had to think to myself, because th- th- this year's been a bit of a landmark year for me. I've I've had a big birthday and I've also got married too. And I thought... Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, I, I started thinking to myself, well, I am going to have less time to do these things. So what really matters to me? And the one thing that stood out and the one thing that gave me the most... Uh, pleasure and joy was writing. It was, you know, it, it was getting the feedback from my books. It was creating my characters. It was, it was plotting the story. It, it was just everything, everything to do with it was the thing that gave me the most pleasure. Um, so I really actually, I, I had to, I had to take back quite a lot of what I've been doing outside of work to the point now that I'm only, well, we do, we record diddly done once or twice a month uh and then that's and and then apart from writing and i i suppose like i said i've been writing a book a year but that's quite stretched out um so it's now at a pace where i feel like i've now got the energy and i've got the time to dedicate to to my writing in a way that i don't think i have had before and I've re and I've really seen the benefits from that. So I have I've written. I was going to say it can't help if you're feeling like you're really stretching yourself so thin mm. that you know it's got to have an impact on what you're trying to. Oh, create. definitely so, definitely so. Yeah, and I I did finish I finished a horror novella this year, and I've I've never written horror before, um, but I just had this idea for the last fifteen years, I reckon, um, and mm. I just had to get it down, and I thought, well. With the with the wedding coming up, I I'm not sure whether I could invest that time, even emotionally, into writing a, a full novel this year. So let let's try something with f- you know fewer words and maybe a shorter more shorter story, um, or, or a poem, or a poem. It could have or or, or <laughs> possibly yeah, or, or possibly a haiku. You know, a bit of, a bit of flash fiction. <laughs> The Morales were dead to begin with. You know that. That's it. <laughs> Plagiarizing Dickens. No. So I. I. So it's. I've. I've already seen the benefits, and I just absolutely. I love the process. I've. I. I started a writing. Um, a writers group at work because I. I work for the University of Cambridge, and we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have writers in abundance, all, all at different stages. We have writers who are published, writers who are self-published, writers who are thinking about writing their first book, writers who write flash fiction, writers who write short stories. Just you know, just everyone's in, you know invited, and I've found mm. them a good, a good sort of sounding off board. And we all give each other uh, little samples of what we've been working on recently, and uh, it's really good. It's a really good place, I find, to sort of hone your ideas. And there may be someone there who's stronger on horror than they are on science fiction, or someone there who's better 
uh, on biography, perhaps. And it's you know just just there's there's different strengths in different departments. Um, you seem very unafraid of switching up the genres because you've done young adult fiction, horror, factual. Yeah. Is there anything that you haven't tried yet that you fancy having a dabble with? Well, erotic thrillers, I suppose. But, you know, well, that could well, always yeah. come. That could always come. What about rom-com? <laughs> Rom-com's extremely big, isn't it? I I have got... So, I, I've got a little book which has various scribblings over the years. Uh, and there are... You've got a little black book with your poems. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. Pink Floyd yes. reference there. Got that one, mate. <laughs> uh, and... I've got some synopsis ideas, and I've got some just 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 for a whole range of different things. You know, I, the way mm. I look at it is that the only person who's going to stop me from writing for different genres is myself. You know, and some things might work, some things might not. Or the wife, or the one, well, well, yeah, well, yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, it's. I think you only live once, and I I want to I want to get as much done and as much down as possible. And I want to explore as many different genres as I can, and you know, some will work, some won't. Um, but as long as you, as long as you continue learning, and as long as you look at yourself and you think while you're working on a book that you think, yes, there's elements of this that are better than the last one. You know, either I've written this more, con- you know, more concisely, or I, or I've, or I've learned more from. The process, as it were. I mean, I the way I, I look at what at my books, Mark, is that I would I'd like to think that each one is a stepping stone. I think the best book I will ever write is the last book I will ever write, and the worst book I will ever write is the first book I ever wrote. <laughs> you know, and that that's just my that's my viewpoint. That's probably true. Hmm. I think yeah, that's but- that's generally the the writer's bell curve that you you go through in a career you know your first couple of books fair enough books three four five are your kind of heyday and then once you get past that and you're on the downward slopes you think one thinks immediately of martin amos and he's not written anything staggering for about 20 years but um yeah you'd like to think that you you can just keep getting better but you've got to keep absorbing and you've got to keep pushing yeah. yourself and, and trying the new genres and uh i don't know that's a very uh combative way of living and and you know that's a that's a very pure artistic uh ethic that you've you've got to have and for every writer mm. that feels that way there are plenty of others who are quite happy to say i do what i do why mm. mess with it it's, I mean, like, the, and I've, I've probably said this before on every podcast I've ever been on, but I um, was once listening to a talk uh, from Jeffrey Deaver. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a big oh, yeah. American thriller writer. And he was saying, um, you know, there's no, there's no great artistic suffering and intensity and brooding genius in my, in my work. I write entertainment. I write things that are going to amuse people and divert them while they're on their commute or while it's a rainy afternoon. And if they enjoy them and they throw them away, then my book has done its job. And that's a that's a lovely 
kind of ego-free way of looking at it. It's it's so it's so lovely that you can offset the the number of you know really quite egomaniac authors who think that what they're doing is going to change the world to people who are just quite genuine people i imagine terence dicks would have been among them who said look i just i do what i do you yeah. know i'm not gonna mm-hmm. i'm not it's not rocket science um but it makes people happy and i'd much rather personally i'd much rather make people happy than mm. than you know than be any good <laughs> or preferably both <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's, a, it's it's been a nice a nice thing for me like i say it's been a big experiment i mean one of the one of the big surprises i had as well was when i was given the opportunity to try to write a, an audio script um mm. and uh for a company called sounds of thunder which was being run by a friend of mine um and and didn't you know i, I just threw one in there they they said it's yet another anthology you know oh put together like a, a like a horror thing and i thought i know what i'd do i want to do a comedy anthology um comedy horror story because i love comedy horror and mm-hmm. um and they just tried it and they liked it and then they went away and recorded it i knew nothing about it and it came back and toby haydoke like reading my words oh wow which was mm. another you know huge surprise but it it's, it's funny um hayden saying about you know you've got to limit what you do and and I've tried that before, but the trouble is I miss things. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. Um, but but it is it's a big experiment, and it may be that I end up not actually doing as much because I'm doing all lots of little things. But I think as long as as like you're talking about, as long as you keep experimenting and keep pushing yourself to see, oh, what if I did this? Can I do this? And then find out you can or you can't, then then it's all well and good and it's it's there's nothing but positivity um but one of the one of the the big things for me when i was I, my confidence was at its lowest was i heard an interview and i can't remember who it was i can't remember it was, it was it could have been joanne harris or someone like that was saying that if a lot of people say you're only a writer when you're published but the bottom line is you're a writer if you write it's as simple as that yeah and yeah. and and the person you're writing for essentially is yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same with a lot of creative things, isn't it? You know, you're predominantly you're creating something that you enjoy because yeah. uh, you've got to enjoy it yourself before you, you know, put it out to the world for other people to take in. I do, I do find that there is a little bit of sniffiness with regards to self-publishing. I I once had someone who I went to school with, got in contact, and she had an idea for a book um, about her son, who, um, you know, had had quite an an incredible story. Um, But the way that she phrased it to me in her message, she just wrote to me on Facebook and said, oh, I I want to do a book, Uh, not a book like yours, a proper book. (laughs) Wow. Um, And... At that point, I I have to say, I just thought, well, that's someone who's never getting a reply. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's tricky. I, I suppose there there is still a oh, tiny bit of a step. I mean, yeah, Simon's right. If if you write, you write. If you've if you've got a book out, you've got a book out. If you've got a short story on a website somewhere or on a blog, you're still a writer. I mean, I, I suppose technically that opens it up to absolutely everybody because we all write on social media every day perhaps but 
Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it shouldn't diminish what that person's trying to achieve, no matter whichever way they release it, you know. Um, I suppose it's like it's saying if you write children's stories because there's only a few words, then you're not as much of a writer who writes something as thick as Lord of the Rings. It's, mm. You know, I mean, there, that, that's another, you know... Um, you know, that's another can of worms, isn't it? Children's stories where you're you're reducing things down to the, its bare essentials. Mm. Well, thi- so you know, this is where something. Sorry, mate. This is where something like the Target books, just to link it back to Terence Dix and what we were saying earlier, are such a great source of inspiration for me. With the Captain Random books, I think everything that I set out to do with a Captain Random book. A target novelization has done 150 times before. It's just, it's getting the basic story there. It's not talking down to an audience, but it's not talking up. It's just completely middle of the road in its pitch. It's stripping out all of the fluff out of a story as well. It It's just, it's getting those action points in place. It's it's maybe giving you a slight window into the characters in a way that you haven't seen in you know on in the TV series. I can think you know the Cave Monsters is a brilliant example for that, mm-hmm. um, among others, of course. Um, and that's what kind of what I try and set out to do with my Captain Random books. They're very much for uh, for for the kind of people who. I wouldn't. I suppose. I suppose I would say read, used to read the Target books because they're. You know, I'd like to. I wouldn't like to limit them to. Uh, you know, just young adults. Um, but they're very much. You know, that's kind of what I'm setting out to do with them is to make them as concise as the Target range was. I suppose. Um, and I just. I. I just think it's sometimes better as well. I mean, you you look at something like the Harry Potter series, you know, every single book was bigger than the last. Then to the books, you wonder whether I have to take the week off work just to finish that book. You know, it's, uh, and I started doing it with the second Captain Random book. I started thinking, right, well, the last one was 65,000. I think it was 65,000 words. And by the time I got to 40, I started thinking, oh no, I think that I think the story's coming to an end. What am I going to do here? I've got to make another twenty-five thousand words out of nowhere. What am I? Gonna... And I thought, no, you're being stupid. You're being stupid. Just just write until the story is over. Don't set it out with a word count. Just 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 keep writing until you think. No, if I go any further, I, I need to wrap this up now because otherwise there's just going to be fluff here. You know, um, I mean, Lord Lord of the Rings is brilliant by, but I mean by the time you've got to your fifth chapter when they're camping, you know, it just gets a bit, uh, a bit repetitive. You just think, I'm, I swear I read this 30 pages ago. Um, I'll, I'll let me, let me just, so I, I tried to read Lord of the Rings um, as part of my literature degree about a hundred years ago. And um, I think I, I gave up on it on about page 200 when, all that had happened in 200 pages was a bunch of little people had walked into a wood and had a picnic. I just thought two, two, Terence Dix would have done two whole books in the amount of time <laughs> it's taken these guys to walk 50 yards and have a chicken yeah. leg. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
But also, it's really interesting hearing what you were saying just there, because we obviously approach it from a completely different uh, angle. So with with the Winterhill stories, um, every story in my books uh, in the Winterhill series, they're all 8,000 words long or, you know, 8,001 or 8,005, but it's about 8,000 words. And that's my limit because I want each adventure to be you know like i always said it was like a the book equivalent of a, a tv box set and you get really quite uh quite tight um margins to operate in so for me it's always chopping the story down so that it fits in 8000 words and i can then kind of expand the fun dialogue stuff or i can give them character moments or whatever and whereas you're happy to just let the story be the story and and be its own thing i'm always much more kind of a carpenter by the by the numbers following the instructions right. kind of kind of a writer you know i just i come at it from a very production production line kind of kind of angle i see yeah okay it's interesting though because no you know that there is i mean i suppose the thing that we're saying is that there is no correct way to do it really it, it's just find something that works for you and if you have a and if you have a formula yeah stick to it uh you know un- unless you really do want to test yourself um you know it, it's a um it's yeah there's just no right way of doing it <laughs> And if there was, we'd all be rich and famous. So, Ian, um, seeing as Hayden's slipped in his little plug for <laughs> his next book coming out, did he? I, did, do you, I didn't do you notice. Give a plug what, to yours? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I did it very subtly. Oh, right. something about something about it's available on the first of October. In all good bookshops. <laughs> I, 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 in all good bookshops. Which good bookshops? Uh, all of them. No, uh, Waterstones, Foils. Um, uh, Barnes and Noble, oh, crikey, what other ones? Um, I'm just trying to think of book, wow. Booktopia. Um, ooh, W. H. Smith. I haven't been able to crack yet, which is an odd one. No, you you won't. You have to. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, no, but you you won't. No, um, oh. <laughs> giving away trade secrets. There, I'd have been sued up the wazoo. <laughs> oh my lord. Um, edit this um so l- yeah. let me give a little plug so my the the seventh and final book in the Windhill series came out uh well a, a month ago two months ago so all seven of mm-hmm. them are available on um amazon for anyone who likes uh episodic female driven science fiction with some uh all, all kinds of influences and all kinds of things, and some of it's very Douglas Adams, and some of it's very Terry Pratchett, and some of it isn't very good. Uh, no, um, it's uh, it is what it is, and I, I'm very proud of it. So Simon, it's probably a bit unfair because you're in the middle of writing your uh, your first sort of full size novel, but have you got anything out there that people can have a look through to um, get an idea of your writing style? <laughs> let me think. Um... The next thing that's coming out that I'm quite proud of, uh, and I don't know of a date, but it is fairly soon, is Ultrix Books, A-L-T-R-I-X. 
uh, are putting out a another charity anthology um, called Masterpieces. So it's an unofficial mm. book all about, obviously, the master. And oh, um, wow. I was... I know, and I was given John Ooh. Sims' master. Or I think I asked for it actually. Yet again, I thought actually he's the most interesting for me because mm-hmm. I didn't. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, and I've timed it around the time he was in number ten, right? And I'm particularly proud of it and particularly nervous of it because of how somewhat, um, what's the word? You know, it's kind of predicted some of what's happened and at the time of recording what's happening in Parliament. Um, And and I was quite, do you know what? I was really pleased. I shouldn't say this really, but I was really pleased in the Facebook group for the the book is that when it came to my story and um, Paul Driscoll, the editor, um, put up a little uh, mini synopsis of it and inferred that it was to do with politics Someone came on and and said, "Oh God, why do they always have to drag politics into Doctor Who?" And part of me thought, "Yes, my job is my job is done. My job is done." Oh, can you? Um, obviously, I, I could just um, listen to this when it's released. But while I've got you on the on the line, it's called Masterpieces. You say, "Yeah, Masterpieces, Masterpieces from A L T R I X." I think. It's probably just going to be an ebook. I think. I don't know because I know they do hard copies, but it may be that because it's uh, unofficial and because it's for charity that it, it's, right. it can't go through the usual routes. But uh, yeah, sure. But yeah, no, I'm very proud of that, and I, I think it's. I think it's quite funny. I, I will. Know. I will absolutely look out for that. It sounds brilliant. Cool. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to take a commercial break now. And when we come back, we're going to be getting some recommendations from the guys uh, for some things that you might want to check out. I don't suppose you have a copy of Fly Fishing by J.R. Hartley. It is rather old. It's by J.R. Hartley. Good old yellow pages. We don't just help with the nasty things in life, like a blocked drain. We're there for the nice things, too. You do? Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Can you keep it for me? My name, oh yes, it's J.R. Hartley. And welcome back. So we've reached the point in the show where we're going to get some recommendations from our uh, guests. So I am going to start with Hayden. What would you like to recommend for our listeners? I suppose we're not allowed to recommend our own work, are we? Well, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm, sure, you, I'm sure you could, you know, drop it into the conversation. <laughs> um, no, I'm actually, I, I, I'm not going to because that, that just looks really big-headed of myself. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to recommend... Uh, I'm going to recommend a book, actually. And it's... It's one that I read a couple of months ago, but it has uh, stayed with me, and that's uh, Band of Brothers. Ah, yes. By Stephen Moore. Uh, it was... I mean, I, I obviously watched the HBO series mm-hmm. back in the day, um, the Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. 
brilliant uh, ter- uh, telly miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, which was all about Easy Company um, coming over from America, setting up camp in Oldbourne, which yeah. uh, this Doctor Who fan should all be well aware mm-hmm. of, and then uh, obviously heading off uh, over into uh, eventually. I think they would. Uh, God, this is terrible. Sorry, it's, it's late and my brain has turned complete <laughs> mush. But they they were they were the first um, Easy Company were the first platoon uh, to infiltrate the Eagle's Nest, mm-hmm. um, and it was just it's a wonderful, wonderful book. I mean that the war is 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 the backdrop. Yeah, essentially, it's more about comradeship. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, it's about just the human race, I suppose. Uh, as a whole, I, I, I guess during a very testing time, mm. and just what what desperate times can, can drive people on to do, I suppose. So yeah, it, it's it's a fantastic book. It's I think it's on the fifth revision now, and uh, as we were talking about earlier, I have actually I did find spelling mistakes in there, Ooh. so I'll whisper that. <laughs> but there we go. It's <laughs> but it's uh, no, it's, it's a fantastic book, and it was something a little different mm. for myself. Um, and just yeah, glorious. So, ba- Band of Brothers, excellent. And Simon, what have you got for us? Um, this is probably something that a lot of people would have looked at anyway. But I've just come to the end of watching the brand new Netflix Dark Crystal series, uh, Age of Resistance. Mm. Um, and the main reason I'm recommending it, I mean, obviously for anyone who loved the original film. I can kind of... I don't think they're going to be disappointed, are they? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, if they are... I don't know. I th- I think you'd have to be fairly cold-hearted and fairly stuck in your ways to have a problem with it. Um, I all, all I want to enthuse about is the fact that I think, in a funny way, with, with everything that's going on in the world, it can seem like a pretty dark place, but... For things for a project like this, and it may be that we're in a period of time before the the nasty fingers of capitalism. Did I say that? Maybe not. Um, get in there and really start spoiling things and start dictating what a company like Netflix chucks its money at. I just think it's amazing because you get to the end of the ten episodes, and then there's a really good hour and twenty minutes making of documentary as well ah, really? yeah it's it's really great and um you realize that people really high up in netflix as well as obviously the henson family and and lots of other people mm-hmm. involved uh really wanted to make this program because they loved the film and it goes through the process of the fact that they were initially going to do like an animated series like a cgi your typical cgi animated series and they realized you know mm-hmm. what this isn't this isn't working and and then they started using puppet skexis get they got the original puppet skexis and tried yeah. them with cgi girlflings tried the two together no it didn't work and then they they basically turned around and said you know what we're gonna have to do this as they did it back then and mm-hmm. they have and, and uh, aside from a little bit of cgi on certain little touches like certain little facial yeah. tweaks and uh the skexis tongues are fascinating as their mouths are moving their tongues are moving as they would do if they were talking quite incredible mm-hmm. um the level of detail the world building is up to the way to the same level if not beyond what the original film did and um you know, it certainly kept my interest there's something tangible tangible about those puppets isn't there it's just i don't know it just yeah you know they're puppets but it feels 
more real than watching a CGI character. Yeah, and and do you know what? It's sense. really dark. It's really dark to the point where I've I've got two young girls and um one of them the older one who's 10 was watching the original film and her and her cousin were mm. taking the mickey out of it as they were watching it because I was saying I think it was all a bit silly with the puppets and what have you. But I think she'll yeah. get to a certain age and she'll the penny, you know, the penny will drop. Um mm. but equally I'm kind of glad because as the series goes on just like the Star Wars prequels, you know, this is a prequel towards the end mm. film, and we all know where yeah. the, the original film was in a really dark mm. place when it started. Yeah. You know, this is getting towards that. So there's some pretty bad things happen. Um, mm. But I, I don't think I could recommend it more. If I could change one thing, I'd say there should be more of the Trevor Jones music in it. Um, but <laughs> that does give an appearance at a really good point so maybe less is more with that one so yeah thoroughly thoroughly recommend that excellent and ian what have you got uh well um dvd slash streaming tv choice uh i'm still uh incredibly blown away by oh that's an unfortunate expression uh by chernobyl that was the uh hbo sky atlantic series everything they say about it on imdb and all these other sites is true it is the best thing that has ever happened to television ever full stop um if i could mention one book while we're while we're on the Mm. subject of writerly things um there's a book published on the 19th of september called uh i love the bones of you which is the autobiography of christopher eccleston it's well i say autobiography it's Mm. it's basically it's the story of his father and their relationship and his father um and his mental decline uh, but obviously, at, at times, Eccleston also talks about his own career as an actor. And there's one particular mm-hmm. chapter which, um, oh, you're going to love it, guys. <laughs> Excellent. When's that out? Did uh, you say? It's out the 19th of September. Oh, not long ago. I'm just going to say, Ian, have you ever listened to the Script Notes podcast? No, I have not. It is presented by two men, and one of them is the guy who wrote Chernobyl. Oh, now. Come in, is it Craig? Craig, Craig someone. Craig. But I, I don't know. If my eyesight was slightly better, I'd be able to read it because I can see the cover of the Chernobyl DVD from, <laughs> from where I'm slouched <laughs> on the bed. Um, oh, no, I'm, I'm never going to read that with my ancient 43-year-old eyes. Um, oh, that, there's one particular episode he one particular episode he presents on his own it's literally you know like a monologue really and he's talking yeah. about the, the essentially story and how to make your story work and it's i think it's about 40 45 minutes long or something like that and it's absolute gold dust so look up the script notes oh well podcast. i'm gonna download that right now script notes you say yeah it's really really good oh, um okay. and, and through most of it they interview you know uh script writers from hollywood you know really really top level people some amazing there's a really good episode with charlie brooker as well where he's talking about black mirror that's that's gold dust as well mm. oh wow cool excellent well, I'm going to chuck a couple out there. Um, the first one I think Simon has uh, come across is um, it's on Netflix. It started out on YouTube and it's a kid's show called Storybots. Ah, uh, yes, it's cool. Oh, okay. It is brilliant. Uh, so our son is five now or coming on. 
he'll be six in December. Um, so I think he's sort of a prime age for it, really. Um, so it's um, you could sort of dumb it down and say it's like a, a sort of slightly cutesied uh, version of um, Do You Know, which is um, another favourite in our house, mainly because Maddie Moat that presents it on CBBS is not too shabby to look at uh but uh, storybots it starts off it's um it's a very funny show uh, it's animated um you'll get um it's basically these little robots they live inside a computer a child will come up with a question so it could be how many animal kinds of animals are there or uh, how does rain work or um where do french fries come from and um, their boss is um, quite highly strung, would you say, Simon? Oh, uh, yeah. That's one way of describing them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he will instruct them to go off and find out the answer. So they go off and they look into it. And it's it's very funny. It's very sweet. Um, and there's lots of little songs thrown in as well. Uh, it's just a real delight to watch. Um, they're on the third series now on Netflix. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed that. And on a slightly more... Um, Serious note, I have been devouring Brexit Cast, which is a, a BBC podcast all about uh, our favourite uh, topic pretty much everyone in Britain is talking about. Um, and I just find it um, quite interesting. It's, it's reassuring in a way because you're hearing um, BBC reporters talking about... Um, the latest developments and it kind of humanizes it a bit because you otherwise if you're just watching the news all the time um it does it could get quite depressing but um there's a lot of humor in there um but the 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 main presenters do a great job of getting the facts across trying to um I th they try to be quite even with the way that they present it um but it, it's become something i i have to listen to straight away as soon as a new one drops, particularly as new developments seem to happen. So Brexit cast, if that's your kind of thing, I would certainly recommend. Um, so before you guys go, uh, firstly, thanks very much for, for coming on and, and chatting. Um, would you like to give a plug to your various things you've got going on? Simon, for starters, uh, you, you've got your podcast that you're doing and a radio show to boot as well oh, so do you want to give them a quick plug oh brilliant okay i'll be very quick um strangers in space podcast which is what was the blue box podcast that used to do with mark mm -hmm. um uh so yeah strangers in space um i've also got a couple of radio shows which also go out on mixed cloud uh one called two knobs and an oscillator which is all electronic music from all various mm -hmm. different areas and what have you and the other one is uh, robots on the radar which is a bit more freeform and a bit more indie with a bit of electronic stuff so i do those mm. kind of once a month each of those um and they're both on phonic fm so you can look up phonic fm and uh, you can get a live link to that but also those shows are on mixed cloud if you search for them cool and hayden obviously we probably know you best from diddly dumb Diddly Dum, yes, yeah. I'm in my fourth year with Diddly Dum, wow. uh, the Doctor Who podcast, uh, the Diddly Dum podcast with Doc Whom, myself, and Mark John. Yep, yeah, uh, it's uh, still going strong. Mm -hmm. We've got our top five William Hartnell episodes coming up soon. Yeah, I'm so to that one. 
yeah, so do get in contact with us at diddly underscore dumb on Twitter if you'd like to uh, to um, to vote for your top five Billy Hartnell mm. uh, stories. Um, yeah, my my books got uh, Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who during the Wilderness Years. Uh, the two Captain Random books that have been uh, written and released so far: Captain Random versus the Sandman, and Captain Random uh, and the Eater of Souls. Uh, my crime thriller book, The Man in the Corner. Uh, yep, yeah, they're all available uh, on Amazon and, uh, like I said earlier, from all good bookshops too. Excellent. And Ian, have you got any? You you <laughs> cut down on your podcasting lately, which I, disappoints me greatly. Well, I had to. I I stopped doing five minute fiction Boo. because do I more. <laughs> I was trying to read a book a week and do a podcast about it and have a full time job and run thirty kilometers a week and try and write. And like Aiden was saying, it just it's just too much. So I've kind of given up on mm. pretty much everything now. Um, the seven Winter Hill books are available. Um, I might write something else one day. You don't know. Right now, I'm just eating crisps and getting fat. excellent uh well before we go i will just quickly give a mention uh by the time this episode goes out i will have been on the proctor who podcast Uh, they have an offshoot called take your seats which is uh, presented by john aitken and sucky kark uh, and um they focus on sci-fi movies and we're going to be looking at uh, ridley scott's alien so um, head over there to their feed and check that out. So hopefully that should be a good one. So thank you once again, guys. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you all on. And uh, yeah, Thank you for having us. Well, the pleasure was all mine. And we'll speak again soon. Take care. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>